Hello and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. And my name is Hado and I too am an autodidact. Welcome Hado, it's good to see you again. It is, it's been a long time between the flip and the flop. Yes, I've been rather slack uh, in the last two or three weeks, so uh, yes, uh, mea culpa. Indeed, well now you're sober again, we should get on with it. <laughs> I wasn't drunk the entire time. I was hungover for most of it. <laughs> oh, God. So, anyway, let's move on. So, today we're talking about Chapter 17. We're getting... getting uh, we nearly finished this book, Hello. We, we are indeed. We, we, we may end. move on to other things, but... <laughs> we shall. Not yet. There's still some good juice to be squeezed here. <laughs> so, today's Chapter 17 of Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, and it's entitled The Wheels of Industry. And uh, basically, it's about the Industrial Revolution. Yes. So, we've already established in previous chapters and podcasts that the modern economy only grows because of our trust in the future and yep. the willingness of capitalists to invest their profits in more production. And indeed, also in the credit which is advanced that enables the expansion of the money supply for both investment and the other side of the coin, which is consumption. Yes, we're going to be talking a bit about consumption later. Don't preempt us, Hutto. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, but investment in production is not enough. You, we need consumption, as, as yeah. you, you mentioned, but we also require energy and raw materials, yes. i.e. resources, to enable us to have this great capitalistic system. But these things are finite, Hutto. When, when they run out, the entire system will collapse. Indeed, and we hear so much about peak oil and all these other things, you know, the, the limitations on resources and the increasing costs. Um, and once again, Harari bravely picks up his lance and tilts at the windmills and shows that they are, in fact, <laughs> mythical. But the question is, are energy and raw materials finite? Okay, so while we've used more and more energy and raw materials over time, the amount available has actually increased. Yes, this is also one of the arguments about the whole peak oil thing, but of course, as Harari says, it goes far, far further than that. Yeah, and so this is where science and technology comes in to save the day. So if it ever seems at risk of running out of, of these resources, investments have flowed into scientific and te technological research which have always been able to work out more efficient ways of extracting existing resources, mm -hmm. as well as discovering completely new types or even inventing completely new types. Indeed, which, uh, given what Malthus was saying about us being up to our ears in horseshit by now, was a good idea. Hi, <laughs> I don't know if that's an exact quote, but yeah, I, I take your point. So, um, if we consider the vehicle industry, for example, in, in 1700 it relied overwhelmingly on wood and iron. Mm. Um, but today, it exploits many new materials that didn't exist in 1700, such as plastic. Most of our cars are made of, pretty much we complain that they're made of plastic these days. Mm -hmm. uh, rubber, aluminium and titan titanium, mm. etc. Uh, in 1700, carts were built with human muscle. Today, they are built by machines powered by petroleum combustion engines and even nuclear power. Mm. This progress has basically been termed the Industrial Revolution. Indeed. So before the Industrial Revolution, humans burnt wood to smelt iron, uh, 
heat their houses and to do their cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, sailing ships harnessed wind power and mills captured the flow of rivers in order to grind grain. Mm-hmm. So we've always been able to sort of capture and harness energy, um, but there were limitations. So trees weren't always available, especially after you cut them all down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and especially particular places in the Middle East uh, were never had trees in the first place. So they, yeah. that's, that's where trade sort of, you know, had a big impact. Um, rivers aren't available everywhere. And the wind doesn't always blow, Hutto. Indeed. And when it does, it doesn't always come in the right direction, as any sailing ship can tell you. Yeah. So, essentially, the bigger problem was that we didn't know how to convert one type of energy into another. Mm-hmm. We could only sort of use an energy that we found, uh, you know, existing in nature. Right. Uh, wind and water couldn't be used to heat water or smelt iron, for example. Um, right. Wood couldn't be burned to make a millstone move. Right. Okay. The human body and also animal bodies were Mm -hmm. the only engines available that could convert energy from one form into another. Yes. And they convert, obviously, food into movement of muscles. Yes. So this meant that human and animal muscles were the only means available available to perform useful work. Yes, muscle power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it follows that all the energy in the world came from a single source, plants. Yes. I might have to rethink my vegetarianism. Uh, I might have to get onto that since they're the source of all energy in the world. Well, well, we used to be. There are, of course, we could say, well, you, there are mushrooms and stuff like that. But uh, the generality well, you, you, of that. You, you peed into you. Oh, look, <laughs> uh, exceptions. If there's an exception, it comes into my crazy brain. You're but, an exceptional man. Yeah, but um, look, the generality of the argument is overwhelmingly true. Yeah. Um, and if you want to go back another step, plants received all their energy from the sun. Yes. And so they use a process called photosynthesis to convert sunlight into their energy, which is then consumed by animals yep. uh, and humans, and then humans consume the animals. So the energy always has all, always pretty much came from the sun. Yep. Um, so human history was dominated by the growth cycles of plants and the changing cycles of the sun. So... Daytime versus nighttime, yep. summer versus winter. Everything was ultimately fueled by solar energy. Yeah. Let's get down and worship the sun god, Hutto. Yep, all converted through chemical processes to our own form of internal combustion. But this won't do. We need to fix this because, you know, we, we want to be able to create energy when and where we want and have it in any well, form that we want. I've got no interest in living 400 years ago without it. <laughs> Terrible world. No anaesthetic, no energy, no TV. (laughs) So going back uh, over a thousand years, in 9th century China, gunpowder was invented. Mm. Um, But the idea of using gunpowder to fire a projectile wasn't thought of for another 600 years yeah. because no one had ever thought, no one thought in terms of converting energy into, from one form into another. Yeah. So the Chinese invented gunpowder and essentially they used it for a few bombs, but mainly used it for fireworks. Yeah. Um, it's very hard for us brought up in our abundance of energy conversion to understand this mindset. Yeah. But, you know, six centuries, so nobody got down to turning... Yeah boom into movement. Maybe everyone was just dumber back then. 
Well... Or maybe we're sitting on the shoulders of giants. Well, yes. I mean, this is the point. It, it's how you measure dumb and intelligence and yeah. things like that. Yeah. I was being facetious. I don't think people were dumb back then. Oh, I look. mean, if I was living uh, in the year 1200, I wouldn't be uh, thinking of inventing a gun, I don't think. I hope at some stage we get onto a book about artificial intelligence and all that stuff, and then we can talk about these things in depth. Okay. So, uh, so 600 years after uh, gunpowder was discovered... The gun first guns appeared. Yeah, mainly and they were cannons. They were big. They were big guns. Um, and another three hundred years passed before the next machine was invented that converted heat into movement. It's crazy, isn't it? it? Absolutely crazy. Um, so we could have had, an, in a sense, you, you think, man, we actually could have had an industrial revolution a long time before we did. Well, that is absolutely right. You, if a time machine were possible, that could take you back. A thousand years, you know, you could start the whole process so much quicker. Yeah, I mean, I've got reservations about whether it's a good thing, but you know, um, I suppose we are living a better life than we were a thousand I years ago. Look, I shouldn't be too negative. I like dentists and anaesthetic, I can tell you. <laughs> so now we've got up to Britain, good old Britain in the 18th century. Yeah. So the, the problem Britain had was they cut down most of their trees yep. to, to use the wood for firewood. Yes. And, and to build houses. And, and so other forth. things. Yeah, There's to build virtually things. no you in the whole of Europe now because they use it to make bows. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They're long bows. Um, so they were suffering from a shortage of trees and they started burning coal as a substitute. Now, my understanding is that Britain was an interesting place because you could find coal deposits just lying on the ground. Mm. So in a lot of places in the world, there might be plenty of coal, but if it's underground, you're yeah. not going to think to burn it yeah. in lieu of firewood, are you? No. I mean, there's places where there was oil seeping out of the ground. Uh, there's plenty of places where you've got marsh gas and so on, including England. But yes, England had an abundance of readily available yeah. coal. And oil was used, actually, for... Uh, for um, waterproofing roofs yes, and, and, uh, and also like um, uh, for oiling axles and things. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so, the, so the Brits started burning coal as a substitute. Um, the problem was that they used up the above ground coal pretty quickly. Right. So they start, started having to dig. Yep. And Britain being as waterlogged as it is, mm -hmm. their their mine, their coal mines became flooded very quickly as soon as you went down a few metres or whatever, it was yep. basically all water. Okay. So flooding prevented most of the below ground coal from being accessible. And then in 1700, or around 1700, mm -hmm. a steam engine was invented to pump the water out of coal mines. And that's how, that's the humble beginnings. That's how it all began, Hello. No trees, coal lying on the ground, water in the... Mines, and yep. now we live in an industrial age. Yep, it's uh, astonishing, and yet it really was kind of that simple. And no real reason why Archimedes could not have invented that pump. Um, he was almost onto it. Yeah, he he got killed, I think, didn't he? So he, you know, I think he didn't he get killed while he was the the myth about him. Oh, the, about, about he was drawing some the, diagrams the in the sand, and yeah. a Roman soldier came up and killed him. So maybe he was just about to invent a steam pump. <laughs> oh, oh, that's that's not the one where an eagle dropped a something on his head to the bald head. Was that Plato? I'm not familiar with that one. Okay, well, that little fact checking will have happened. <laughs> but you tell the story beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> So the ways, I don't know if you're familiar with how steam engines work, but essentially you're burning coal in order to boil water and water boils, produces steam, 
and expands. Now, this had been happening on people's stoves for hundreds of years. Yeah. And, and it was annoying. The, lid, the lids were coming off and stuff, but they didn't think, oh, maybe we could harness this energy somehow. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, I know all about steam engines. I, uh, my father was more cricket than steam engines, a good English Cricket's, cricket and locomotives. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that, uh, the Britain's two greatest legacies. <laughs> I may know, know much about cotton gins, but I know about steam engines. They're the arguments put forward for um, British colonialism in India. Oh, hang on, we brought uh, the railroads and cricket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so once you can produce steam and it expands, you can use the force behind it, the energy behind it, to push a piston, then you can use that piston to perform useful work. Yeah. Okay. So you've converted heat into movement. Eureka! As yep. Archimedes would have said. Absolutely. It changes everything. Yeah. So the first steam engines were extremely inefficient, um, but they did begin to improve uh, fairly quickly. Within decades, they kind of refined the process, the Brits being the geniuses that they are. And uh, the, then they started thinking about other applications. So the steam engines started to come out of the coal mines. Yeah. All right. Uh, they started being connected to other things as well, particularly looms and gins. Yeah. And uh, in my unanswerable questions, I've snuck in an answerable question, actually, so I've cheated a little bit there because right. I'm going to ask you to, to um, tell me what a loom and a gin are because I thought, oh, I can't be bothered doing this research. And Hado's a smart guy, he'll know. Right, right, right. <laughs> we, uh, well, we love learning from your questions. <laughs> But yes, not unanswerable, merely researchable. Yes, exactly. Uh, so now we've revolutionised the textile industry mm -hmm. and Britain became the workshop of the world. Yes. Um, in 1825, the first steam-powered vehicle was invented and it was a locomotive for transporting coal to of docks. Of course, absolutely. Yep. Where else would you start? Yes. And then five years later, a railway line was opened between Liverpool and Manchester, which transported not coal, but people. And there's actually a whole story about that, the legislation that had to go through Parliament and how landowners had to be convinced, because Parliament had a lot of landowners in it. You know, yeah, that this, oh, of course, this the House of Lords and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a whole narrative there, but we're taking the satellite view, so we'll just say... So what's the, what's the narrative? Like, what was the controversy? Oh, the, the controversy was... Putting the railway had to have the ability. Oh, they had to, to put it on the land. land. Yeah, that's oh, right. and everyone's going, "What the hell are you doing? Yeah, like, that's, that's why right. are you putting these tracks on my land?" Yeah, that's right. The landowners weren't keen to sell because you basically had to have a system of acquisition of bits of land yeah. to put a railway through, and there was no system. So in these days, what these days what you do is the government would subsidise you to put a windmill on your land and. I grew up in the country uh, near a lot of farmland and the farmers down there just made a killing because there's all these um, wind-powered yes, electricity yeah. Wind generators. Wind yeah. yeah, wind generators. And, you know, the government's paying, I don't, I'm making up numbers, but it might be $100,000 a year for each one. So, you know, you don't have to sell the land necessarily, but these things have been refined with time. Yes, exactly. Um, there was there was a first and this railway was it. Yes, and it didn't take them long to sort all that out, though, because within decades, uh, well, within... 20 years, Britain had tens of thousands of miles of railway yeah. track. And the Industrial Revolution was full steam ahead, Hello, <laughs> Indeed so, yes. <laughs> what a terrible gag. Um, so the internal combustion engine revolutionised transport and 
that uses petroleum and oil to, 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 to work. And now we've got another thing that we can fight wars over. We're not just fighting wars over land and religion and other things. We can fight wars over oil now. Because mate. we're short of resources. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. But then as we go on to discover, apparently we're not because we've, we're so ingenious that we can create new, new methods. So every few decades, we discover a new energy source. Actually, just going back a step, sorry about that. Um, electricity was invented shortly absolutely, thereafter. Absolutely, and that, that became the other great thing because you can then, you've managed to turn energy into electricity, into movement, and yeah. now you've got a way of turning movement into electricity. Yeah. And then you can send that over the lines and then you can turn electricity into cooking and light and go yeah. as well. I've never been very good at this stuff. I mean, I understand the basics, but I mean... I turn on the tap and the water comes out and I think the light switch and the electricity comes on and uh, you know, I don't understand really very well how it's all created. Uh, but I don't need to, right? Because I'm a spoiled modern man. <laughs> um, so the Industrial Revolution, at its core, is essentially a revolution in the way we can convert energy from one form into another. Uh, well, this is Harari doing his thing again. Yeah. Um, he he likes to take the controversial angle. It's not so much he's controversial in terms of arguing against it, but he likes to take, if you like, the unexpected angle, the way we haven't really thought yeah, about so it. Yeah, so I agree with that. Yeah. Um, and it makes for a very good book, yeah. and there's a lot of validity in it, but um, when you're looking at ways of writing histories, mm. um, lots of people have gone for this kind of three-part three summary, mm. and we'll look at more of that when we do the wrap-up of the book. Mm. Um, but they haven't gone for the ones Harari's gone for, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. So you don't think the Industrial Revolution can be described as essentially a revolution in converting energy from one means to another? You, well, you, it, just, you define it differently? It certainly can be defined that way, and I think it's a totally valid way of looking at it. And look, I commend Harari, but he's, despite the many histories which have already been written, He's found a new way of looking at history, as it were, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is exciting. It's one of the what he does is go back to really broad sort of satellite yes, view, sort yes. of, uh, you know, ways of explaining things. And they're, they're all very obvious points, but you're not used to thinking in that sort of framework. And sure. it, it actually enlightens you and opens up your eyes a bit and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, it is that. Yeah, that that's <laughs> right. Because, I mean, the next thing we'll come to is that the agricultural, the, the um, industrial revolution was actually the second agricultural revolution. Yeah, yeah. So it goes on. Yeah, yeah. Many ways of looking at these things. Yeah. So every few decades we discover a new energy source and the extent to which we can harness energy is only limited by our ingenuity. <laughs> ingenuity. <laughs> um, the world does not like energy. This is absolutely right. Uh, Harari, in fact, quoted some, some numbers, and I, I think it's worth looking at these because we have this great debate about you know, whether we can get enough energy from renewable resources and solar power and all the rest of it. And of course, yeah. he's already made the point that everything really comes from the sun in the first place. Yes. Um, now, the amount of energy stored in all the fossil fuel on Earth is negligible compared to the amount the sun dispenses every day free of charge. Well, that's true, but of course, we only get a fraction of what the sun sends out. But even that tiny fraction amounts to 3,766,800 exajoules of energy. 
Yep. A joule is a metric system unit about the amount you of energy required to lift a small apple one meter up. And its exajoule is a billion billion joules, which is that's a lot of. So that's, that's juggling a lot of apples. Yeah, exactly right. Now, all the world's plants capture only about three thousand of those solar exajoules. I thought that was fascinating. I did too. Yeah. Uh, which is why. So I, I don't know the percentage. Three thousand out of three billion billion, isn't that, it? That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that is just. I had no idea we captured so little. So, so we, we, even now, we are so extraordinarily inefficient in ca capturing the solar energy. Yeah. And, and that's not even counting the other forms of energy we do have. So we can harness nuclear energy now, which yeah. probably isn't to do with the sun. No. Correct me if I'm wrong. So there's essentially an infinite amount of energy. We, we just need to work on... The problem is where... We're harnessing it in an inefficient way and we're using up our natural resources. When in a sense we don't need to, we just need to harness it in smarter ways. Correct. Yeah. All human and activities and industries put together now only consume about 500 exajoules annually. Now, wow. That's, so that's, that's no, it's nothing. It's a drop in the ocean. That's a sixth of the total captured by the biosphere. So in that sense, it's huge. Oh, okay. So it is a sixth. Okay. So those energies, that energy that you're talking about, the sun, is that the energy that the sun emits or is that the energy no, that, 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 that hits the earth? That's the energy that hits the earth. So okay. when you're talking global warming, yeah. we're talking about that and a fraction of it, just yeah. 3,000 exajoules, is getting... It is getting, getting absorbed by plants. Is getting absorbed by plants. Yeah. We're using a sixth of the amount that is caught by all the plants in the world, the whole biosphere of the world. How, how many exajoules are we capturing? Uh, I don't... Um, we're using 500 exajoules annually. Which we are... Yeah, okay, sorry. Yeah, I'm with you now. Yeah. So that's one-sixth of the tiny amount that the plants capture Correct. every day, or is it? Or uh, no, every, every year. Every um, year. Wow. Okay, that surprises me. Yeah, exactly. I, I thought we might have... Been, well, no, it makes sense because we're still really using... Oh, no. Yeah, we're still really mostly using plants for no, our no, energy. No, oil. no, yeah, no. Oil. Yeah, we're using oil, we're using coal, we're using solar, we're using... Yeah. Uh, so we, we've got lots of sources of energy now. Yes. But most of them are plant... Like, a lot of the more common ones are plant-based. Uh, a lot of them are plant-based, but they may be stored from... Yeah, the, from, from the old days, yeah. Right. But what we're doing is significant within the context of the biosystem, but it's trivial, and the biosystem, in terms of energy conversion, is trivial, mm. in terms of energy on the planet. Yeah. So the complexities of wind and water and everything else that they're looking at yeah. is global warming. And nuclear. Huge. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, so I thought, you know, there's a story in itself there, just yeah. in the data he gave. Yeah, there is. I was hoping you'd bring up that stuff, actually, because um, that's really interesting. Yeah. The... the um, the Russians have a saying, which came from their military, that quantity has a quality all of its own. And this, I think, is an example where the quantity of the data mm. introduces whole new quality factors in yeah. terms of what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so when we worry about energy shortages and stuff, we're really talking about an inefficiency in harnessing energy. Correct, yeah. because what you've really got to look at, too, is things like the waste energy, which goes off in the form of heat and stuff yeah. like this, yeah. which has major effects on everything from 
Great Barrier Reefs, but the fact that the cities are warmer than the countryside and yeah. then we run air conditioning to make them London's about two or three degrees warmer than the rest yeah. of England. Yeah. And I, I've been to London and it's not that cold there. Like you, you certainly get a lot colder in the countryside. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, more stuff for another day, but all... Uh, indeed. So um, the Industrial Revolution yielded an unprecedented combination of cheap, abundant energy and cheap, abundant raw materials. So now we've uh, solved the other half of the production side of capitalism. Yes. Okay. And the result was an explosion in productivity. Absolutely. Um, you've already sort of alluded to this, but much of this development and much of this explosion took place in the realm of agriculture, which makes sense because uh, most of the people uh, at that time were worried about feeding themselves. Most people were, were farmers, i.e. peasants or what have you. Yep. Um, and Harari actually states that we could actually call the Industrial Revolution the second agricultural revolution. It was yes. that, that critical. Yes, okay. and, and many have. Yeah, okay. I, I hadn't actually encountered Oh, no, I have. I always hear about this, that second agricultural revolution, but I didn't realise... I thought it just happened to happen happened to happen at the same time. I didn't right. realise it was so critical. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very much interconnected. Um, and, and the other thing that goes with it is England went through a fortunate phase of... a, a long-term phase of um, good weather, as it were. Yeah, so, there was, a, there was a, a, a warming that took yes. place around this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and that also helped them to kick off into the agricultural, industrial and second agricultural revolution. And industrial met methods revolutionised agriculture thanks to a lot of different uh, inventions such as machine, power, mm -hmm. industrial fertilisers and insecticides, uh, and even things like hormones and medications, so yes. like biological sort of inventions. Um, refrigeration allowed longer-term storage. Yes. Um, and with refrigeration and the new methods of transport via air and sea, yep. airplanes and ships, you can now provide long-distance tra transport of agricultural goods. Yes. Uh, raw materials and, and consumable goods. Um, even farm animals became mechanised uh, because they're essentially mass-produced in factories. Uh, and then there's things like they're artificially inseminated to produce frequent abundant offspring. Yes. Uh, they're essentially just another link in the chain. Yes. Which is scary in itself, I suppose. Um, they're cogs in a giant production line. And we even, even some of the names we use for them, such as battery hens, yes. implies that they're part of a machine. So, you know, you might have a, a hen or a pig in a tiny cage or what have you. And it's got a tube going into its mouth so I can get food and water. Or, like a, or a cow's probably a, a, yeah. an easier example. There's tubes going into its mouth so that it can get input. And then there's tubes coming out of its udders so that it can produce milk. Yep. And they're like biological machines. Or, you know, they, they weren't meant for that purpose, but that's no, what we use them right. for. We're, we're doing the chicken little thing on them. Um, and, of course, eventually we, we got rid of the poor old cart horse and replaced him with a tractor and a plough and this sort of thing. Yeah. So, but, uh, yeah. um, and this, this revolution is also continuing. I mean, we're now doing vertical farming and stuff like that. Right. I remember... Well, and farming of the sea is more common now as well. Yes, yes, and a major difference, that one. Um, I remember I worked for a conglomerate, which included some 
a large packaging industry and also some wine industry. Yeah. And we had a manu uh, we had a managing director who came from the manufacturing side of things. Yeah. And he decided we should view wine production as a manufacturing process. Yeah. Yeah. Now up until then. Everybody thought that things like the weather and whether the grapes were good had something to do with it, but yeah. apparently that flowed It was a boutique sort of art, in a sense. Uh, yes, exactly yeah. so. But, it, you know, it was all about, you know, whether the grapes are going to be hit by an early frost. Yeah, Toy Toyota, like Toyota revolutionised that in the realm of um, manufacturing cars as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that, that change of viewpoint didn't actually work too well, but it... Undoubtedly, a, a lot of wine Probably production... Probably works well for a lot of cheap cask wine, which I don't mind, well, it mind works, getting stuck works, into occasionally. Well, it works fine for... That's right. So, but we are more and more turning things like agriculture into a manufacturing process, yes. Yeah. So industrial agriculture, uh, despite the fact that uh, a lot of animals lose out, is actually the basis for the entire modern socio-economic order. It is, and um, the vegans, of course, are... Probably on the right side of history and trying to change yeah, that. Yeah, I was thinking about this as I was taking the notes. I mean, if I, if I was a, a vegan, I feel like if I had hens of my own running around in my backyard, I feel like I, I would be entitled to eat their eggs. But, you know, that doesn't feel too immoral to me, but uh, maybe it is. Well, the only other thing you can do is introduce a cock and let them produce yet more chickens. Well, that's and right. That's Probably right. what you're doing is aborting a... a, a a young chicken, perhaps. Yes, I we uh, kept why, uh, mice as a family pets once, but we managed to control the breeding program. And <laughs> lots of mice. So, um, traditional agricultural workers or peasants made up ninety percent of the population, and today in the United States it's around two percent. Yeah. So, without this second agricultural revolution that we're talking about, this urban industrial revolution could never have taken place because everyone would still be down home on the farm. We didn't have enough people to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. As people were freed from their farms, freed in inverted commas, commas, humans took to the factories and began to produce a previously unimaginable array of goods. Yes. For the first time in human history, supply of goods had begun to outstrip demand. Indeed, uh complete change it, it isn't just a complete change in the realities of economics it's a complete change in thinking about what life is about because yeah. up until then life was always about shortage frugality misery suffering all this <laughs> sort of stuff. and you get your reward in the next life yeah exactly so yeah. and then all of a sudden we've got different you know, we can make everything we need yeah. but well, more than we need more than we need that's right you know god has given us abundance to produce more than we need except it ain't really god it seems to be our own doing yeah and you know, the headset changes which come with this are huge and it also created an entirely new problem yeah. And can you guess what that might be? Yeah, huh? I know more on top of that one because I've studied the advertising industry. <laughs> <laughs> so the problem now becomes, who the hell's going to buy all this stuff that uh -huh. we're making? Gee, the, king, <laughs> the kings and nobles aren't consuming enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the poor factory workers are on, you know, one set a day or whatever. They're probably right. going to consume. So now we have to introduce the next thing, which is now... Some of the middle class merchants had got to the stage where they were getting some They were becoming conspicuous wealth. consumers. Yes, that's yeah. right. So yeah. there was 
the start of a fashion industry already happening, yeah. but it needed substantial expansion. Yeah. The idea of the individualism yeah. comes in. Yeah. Um, now, it doesn't actually sit well with Christianity. There'll be many who argue against that, but Christianity came out of Judaism, the idea of a people, a community, cooperating together. And Harari's got things to say about community in the coming chapters too. So, I mean, you say the merchants got richer so they were able to consume more, but at the end of the day, unless you've got those 90% of people that used to be down on the farm buying some stuff, Correct. Then the system's just well, not going. The I, system's not going to work. What I said was there was a fashion industry. The thing about the fashion industry is you don't throw things away because they're worn out. You throw them away because they're no longer in fashion. Yeah, yeah. Now the merchants had got to the stage where they were doing a bit of that. Yeah. But moving that across to the populace as a whole. Yeah. Huge change. Yeah. So we've entered the age of shopping. Uh, we have. the consumerist revolution. Yeah. So the modern capitalist economy must constantly increase production production in order to survive. Um, but production is not enough. It uh, also, this production must be consumed. Yeah, and now the interesting point there, Harari just ran that sentence across and I, I looked at it the other day and I said, that is not actually correct. Capitalism does not require ever increasing expansion to survive. Mm. Um, I was actually going to ask you about that. I, I didn't put it in the unanswerable questions, but as I was just talking about it then, I was like, is that true? Yeah. Uh, can it just... Uh, sorry, did you want to say more about No, that? no, no. You're, you're, well, but you're really, Mike, I was just going to ask you, why doesn't it need to continually grow to survive? Can, can, are you saying it can stay constant? Yes. Or can it decrease in yeah, survive? It can certainly stay constant. Yeah. It can also decrease. Um, it's really a balancing act of employment. But if it's decreasing... You're going to have a problem on the investment side because people aren't going to invest for things that aren't making good money. Okay, but you see, it depends what you mean by expansion because the general idea, Marx's idea of expansion, was you have to produce constantly more goods and services. Yeah. But you can, in fact, for example, produce more value. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can have. You can. I have, suppose I would put that under the umbrella of expansion, but yeah, well, might be splitting hairs. In heads. terms of gross domestic product yeah, it has gone that's, that's correct um, but in terms of for example resource usage resource usage can actually go down in this process yeah but the value probably has to keep growing doesn't it for, for capitalism to, to yes certainly for capitalism to thrive that's, that's right it may be able to survive for a while but, with but, no growth but what is value the value is a perception so yeah. if you've got your advertising industry that now tells you that what watching Flickr is yeah. better than going out to Cinema, yeah. you've suddenly got a whole different Even, I mean, thing. one thing that comes to my mind is diamonds. I mean, diamonds don't really have that much value. They are pretty, I suppose, exactly so they have that right. value. But they certainly um, have been marketed and, and uh, in such a way that, you know, you just go, oh, diamonds are really valuable. And yeah. I, can't afford, I can't afford diamonds, but at the end of the day, they're just a pretty rock, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things in the wine industry is we don't have to produce more wine we can produce better quality wine. Yeah. Same number of grapes, same acreage of yeah. grape production. So traditionally humans lived in scarcity and practiced frugality, and it became an eth ethical system. So if you're a good person, you avoided luxuries, finished all the food on your plate, and you'd always repair your clothes, you'd darn your socks, rather than going out and buying a new pair of socks. Um, 
only kings and nobles were conspicuous consumers, and I guess with time, merchants, as you mentioned. Um, consumerism encourages people to spoil themselves, treat themselves, or even kill themselves slowly by yes. overconsumption. Yes. So we're becoming a bit like the battery head. We're, we're a cog in the machine now. We're being, you know, cigarette smoking is probably a classic example, right? Exactly. You know, people that smoke. Um, and of course, I've never, never had a cigarette in my life. No, 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 no. You are the, uh, the epitome of, of self-discipline. <laughs> um, but uh, where, 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 where... One moment, I have to go wash my mouth out. <laughs> <laughs> but we're a bit like the battery hens, but we're on the other side of the, yes. the, other side of the equation. Yes, we are. There is, in fact, a wonderful science short story called The Man Who Ate the World, which was about the generation of humans who... The poorer humans were the ones who had to consume the most. Yeah. And this poor child had gone through a traumatic childhood, and he had this driven obligation to consume as much as possible. Yeah. And he was now consuming half the resources of a planet and had to yeah. be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> so frugality is a flaw to be corrected, and we're all good consumers now, Hutto. Yes. Now, the other thing they introduced as part of this was the idea of self-empowerment. So, you know, the, the whole idea of going on, um, what is it called, uh, not shopping therapy, consumer therapy. Oh, retail therapy. Retail therapy, yeah. that's right. The whole idea that, you know, the solution to your problems is to go out and buy more because this is your empowerment. When you spend dollars, this is showing your power as a consumer. Everyone suffers to that from some degree. So... You know, a lot of husbands complain about their wives going out shopping all the time and buying a new dress. But, I mean, the husbands don't mind buying a nicer car than they really need or a second car if they've got money or even, a, you know. I mean, the habit of, of giving giving a car to a child on their 16th or their 18th birthday. I mean, this is this is becoming expected now. The entire idea of keeping up with the Joneses, or in fact one-upmanship on the Joneses, is a product of the advertising industry. Yeah, and that, well, the consumerist ethic, if you want to, Correct. if you want to call it, a, you know, that's more broadly speaking, and the advertising industry is a component of that's that. That's right, because the the community ethic was always share, don't try for the one-upmanship. Yeah. Um, and that's reflected in Puritan yes. Protestant values. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, do, and we still say it with the Amish and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah, good, good example. Yeah. Um, we don't realise how we absorb all this stuff, as Harari says, all this cultural stuff that's thrown at us and think it's normal. Look, you, you sit down and watch television, the ads come on, and you think to yourself, why are they spending all this money on these ads? I'm not going to rush out and buy this product now just because it was out. Oh, I'm sorry, it's it's working subconsciously. Yes. Yeah. You know, if I'm looking for a burger, I'm probably going to head to McDonald's. Yes. And and that's because they've marketed so well to me over the last twenty years. Yes. Or whatever time period yeah. it's been. Now we'll look at some of this at some stage. I've got some lovely anecdotes around this as well. But one of the problems, one of the reasons, with all our abundance, we are so unhappy, is that we have an advertising industry whose job it is to make us unhappy with what we have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's very true. Um, so an example that Harari uses, which I think was interesting, is 
these days, obesity, well, firstly, obesity is more common for poor people than it is for rich people. Exactly so. Um, but the, the example that I really liked was Americans spend more money on diets than it would actually take to feed all the hungry people in the world. Yes, uh, another example. <laughs> that, that, that blew me away. Harari coming up with this wonderful controversial way of looking at things. Yeah. Again. And yet yeah. the tragedy is, of course, that that is absolutely... Yeah, right. when you say controversial, I probably think... I don't think it's controversial, but I think it's unique or it's interesting or it's it's mind-opening, I think. Yes. You know, I think yeah. that, yeah, so I think, I think yeah, anyway, that's what I think you mean when you uh, say I, I'm sure I'm sure there would be people who, who would argue against whether that's factually true or not. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's... Um, well, I mean, if you sign up for Jenny Craig or something, you're paying Jenny Craig $50 a week oh, or whatever you're paying her. Absolutely right. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and that adds up. If, if ever there's, a, there's an example of less is more, it's on what turns up on your plate. Shout out to Jenny Craig, looking for sponsors for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we reconcile the consumerist ethic with the capitalist ethic, which says, uh, the capitalist ethic says the profit should not be wasted, they should be reinvested in production. Right. But the consumerist ethic says, bugger that, I'm going to spend my profits on consumption. Yes. Um, the answer is that there is a division of sensibilities between the elite and the rest. Yes. So you've got your modern-day capitalist who's, your modern-day billionaire, if you like, who's making more and more money. Yes. And then you've got an army of poor people in the West that are getting poorer and poorer while at the same time consuming the products that these billionaires are creating. Yes. Um, and that would all be fine if your poorer consumers were feeling happier as a result of the fact that they're consuming this abundance of wealth. Happiness is a high bar, though. I mean, you know, God, that's a whole nother, that's well, a whole nother can of words. Well, as I said, but we have an advertising industry. That, 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 that prevent, not prevents, but discourages us from being happy. That's right. right. It makes you always want more. Yeah. So the rich invest and the, and the rest consume. We have a capitalistic slash consumer ethic. We do. These days. And the money runs around the economy. You go out to work to earn the money to consume the stuff to make capitalists richer. Let's get us all on a universal basic income. I'd like $2,000 a week universal basic income and I'll run around and consume. Won't make me happy, but I feel like it will. <laughs> and the, the capitalists will be happy because I'll be buying their goods and services. <laughs> right. And of course, the trick you have there is when the technology replaces the worker... Then that is where you end up, yes. Yeah, yeah, because the technology doesn't really need to consume too much, does it? No. That's so that's right. going to be interesting. We're going to get there. In a sense, I wish I was born 20 years later because uh, I'm 50 now. If I was 30 now, I'd be like, yeah, by the time I get to 60, uh, the whole work paradigm, I think, will be completely disrupted. We now very much have the case that things like films, television, um, and books are competing for consumer time. Yeah. Um, the service industry is abundant, but yeah, there's more books being produced than anyone has any possibility of reading. Yeah. And everybody is fighting for readership, fighting yeah. for viewership. Yeah, yeah. Lucky we're not uh, getting sucked into that trap, Hutto. <laughs> Indeed, no, well, we need people to listen to our podcast. <laughs> 
So that gets us to the end of the chapter. Right. Um, unless you wanted to say something else before we get into our unanswerable questions. No, there's, there's good stuff comes in the next chapter, so we'll leave okay. it to that. So I don't have that many unanswerable questions uh, for this chapter because I'm uh, so educated and enlightened in this area, of course. But uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'd like you to just uh, explain to me what is a loom and what is a cotton gin? Because the reading I've always done about the Industrial Revolution in the past, they always mention, oh, and then they made the gin and it revolutionised the textile industry. And I've never bothered to do my research about what the gin actually is. I just sort of, right. I just accept it as written and then move on to the next page. So I thought, uh, I'll just get Helen to explain it to me rather than me doing my own research. <laughs> right. okay. So it's not unanswerable, it's just, and, a, and it's just, it's a lazy question. And the other one, which of course should be in there, is the spinning jenny. Yeah. Um, okay, right. Well, the loom is what you use for basically making material. So you've got cotton. Yeah. But turning cotton into a material, which you can then... Cotton is just a skinny string it, of exactly stuff. Exactly right, yeah. yeah. So... And you need to make that into a sheet or something. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got the, the waft and the, the web. Um, and, and you need to the, basically sorry, leave the, it. The warp, yeah. yeah. So you've got a whole set of cotton strings coming down yeah. and you've got another which has to go across. Yeah, and traditionally that was done by hand, basically yes, doing that's the right. thread. So yeah. you had to go in and out, in and out. Oh, that's a bit boring. Down. That's right. But that's what cottage industry uh, was based exactly on. Exactly right. And yeah. as you can see, a hugely time-consuming progress yeah. until you've got a shuttle which can fly and do that, that clever thing. Well, that's pretty simple then. Uh, oh, you know, like it obviously that's huge efficiency, but uh, I get it, Hannah. In terms of the concept, very simple. In terms of how you get the shuttle to go up and down, up and down as it goes across each one. Oh, just a simple steam-powered uh, piston will do that. Very easy now. <laughs> Back in those days, that really was pushing the limit of technological ability. Yeah, um, yeah. And so so that's the loom, is it? So that what, is the loom. What's a cotton gin? Uh, the cotton gin, the problem with the cotton gin is you've got this cotton seed which has the thread on it, uh, but you've got to somehow string that out into uh, uh, a cotton. And that used to yeah. be a hand-done process and was very time-constraining and yeah. restricted the amount of cotton the Americans... And quite hard on the hands, yeah, sort of hard work as well. Right, yeah. I, think, I think that's what a lot of slaves uh, yeah. used to do. They did employ slaves, but it was highly inefficient and yeah. it, it completely restricted the amount of cotton people produced and used for clothing and everything else. Okay. Um, now, the spinning jenny is the other side of that, that's about wool. Wool comes off a sheep's back. You get all these lengths of wool, which are only about, you know, a few inches long. Mm. And then you've got to twist them together to make a long thread of wool. Oh, yeah. You and then you can knit something with a long thread correct. of wool. Yeah. Oh, so. mate. Well done. I'm glad I asked you that, that question because I feel like I understand a lot better. Now, it's interesting that my education taught me a lot about um, the spinning jenny, which displaced a whole industry or cottage industry of because people. that was a british yeah, thing because the brits were into their wool that's exactly right yeah. but i didn't know much about the americans because the americans invented the cotton gin yes and uh, so they didn't tell me much about that in my british education yeah yeah right okay yeah, okay good well i'm all across that now i'm all happy i've learned something um now the second question is not unanswerable either although i'd be interested in your perspective on it so I'm giving you, I've given you, I've given you a big tick for that. By thank the way. you, oh, yeah. thank you. Um, now the next one, 
is do we have an energy shortage, Hello. Right. Um, we certainly don't have an energy shortage. We've got tons and tons of energy in various forms and it's all convertible into other forms. It doesn't always mean that you have energy where you want it. There yeah. are transmission problems. I mean, yeah. it's been said that if we simply covered parts of Texas and Arizona with solar panels, we'd have enough power to power... Well, I, I always think uh, in Australia, which is mostly desert, if we uh, set it up, we, I feel like we could uh, power the world you know, from, from the desert in Australia. But the problem is, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's only going to work during the day. <laughs> well, that, that's one aspect is that, yes, you've got uh, storage problems yeah, for energy. Yeah. But the other aspect which comes is you've got transmission problems. Yeah, transport, um, in yeah. sense. Yeah. Now, the whole battle between Westinghouse and um, Edison, he, Edison was... Are you talking about te Tesla or are you talking about Westinghouse? No, I, I'm talking about Edison, although, yes, Tesla's in there too. Yeah. Both Tesla and Edison were mainly talking about direct power. Yeah. Um, although, Direct current. Well, well, okay. Tesla was also talking about uh, things like microwave transmission of energy, mm. um, whereas Westinghouse were the ones who were pushing alternating current yeah. power. And the reason alternating current power won out was because you lose so much less on transmission. Yeah. Is Westinghouse a British guy? Uh, I don't know. You've because how I've always read about that debate was Tesla versus Edison. And Edison was actually on the side of alternating current. And, and direct current is better, but alternating current went out because Edison was a mover and shaker. Yeah. Um, the other issue was, uh, what Edison was saying was, my electricity doesn't kill people. And it's yeah. true, direct current doesn't kill but people. But it's less efficient or you can't store it or uh, something. I can't remember. It's the... less efficient in terms of transmission, hugely yeah. less efficient. Yeah. And there are also were storage problems. Now, yeah. we've now... The technology has now changed. We could use direct current without losing much on the transmission. But there's an enormous the investment in alternating current. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so and that's the same problem we have with fossil fuels. That's right. And so it's the I problem. mean, there's so many things we could do that we don't yeah. do because certain capitalists don't want us to. Yeah. And so it's the old problem. This is actually evolution in action. Yeah. Um, because we build on what we've already invented. Yeah. So, yes, it's all designed. But it's still all evolutionary. Yeah. And this is why I wish the evolution versus creation people would just shut up because <laughs> there is no conflict between the two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Man, you've just taken that to a whole, well, whole, well, this, whole another level. This is what I do generally as far as we <laughs> see the connections between things on the other side of the globe. But anyway, in terms of energy shortage, the other thing you have about energy, of course, is inefficiency produces waste heat which is actually about an entropy problem yeah and yeah we got some huge entropy problems yeah and um, most of your light bulbs were producing more heat energy than they were light energy yeah yeah and um, so this is where leds have transformed the game again oh mate you know a lot about this stuff i'm impressed because like i said you know earlier i'm not great in this area so uh, I'm actually learning a bit. I uh, sometimes think maybe I should have become an engineer. Yeah uh, well your, your dad was an engineer wasn't he? Uh, no he wasn't. Oh okay. No he was a chemist. Chemist okay. Pharmacist. So a scientific kind of mind. Yes yes and my yeah. grandfather he was pioneering in things like photography. He yeah. was a laboratory animal. Yeah you're a man of many many skills and knowledges. Are they? Um, 
I'm an autodidact. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes you are. So, uh, my next question. Is electricity the most important modern invention? Uh, well, you can certainly make that argument because electricity has empowered so many things. Um, if we look at the history of technology, number one was the ability to take metals and melt them and turn things into that. Mm. And the second really big step was electricity, which yeah. enabled us to turn movement into a form of energy we could transmit and then turn back into movement. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's an energy converter, isn't it? Exactly. Which is really the, the crux of what we've been yeah. talking about in, today. In fact, the full cycle is you generate heat to drive turbines, which produces energy, uh, electricity, which you transmit, which can then be turned back into movement, heat, and light. Yeah. And now, of course, we've also found that we can turn it into electronics and produce a whole electronics industry. Because one, one of the, um, I guess, uh, competing inventions for the most important model invention would be computers and the, in, and the internet. Yes. But, you know, they, they work on electricity. This is true. Now, there is one other that you can argue which is comparable, which is the chemical... Um, materials industry yeah. because oh, so plastics. Yeah, well, not just plastics, so that's a good example. Yeah. But everything we've got in terms of um, carbons, um, sensors, your everything in your smartphone is mm. all about materials. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, there's little. So, bits the, of, so these these materials we've invented in a sense and put put to yes, good use. Yes, absolutely. The whole mm. battery industry. Mm. Yes, it's got electricity in there, but it's electronics, not electricity, as yeah. Edison was bidding with. But it's all about um, the, the composition of the stuff you put into the phone, and that's all chemistry, basically. Yeah, yeah. So um, the reason I ask that question is because when we have a power failure in, in, in our city, yeah. which happens rarely... Um, Man, it's, you feel like you're going back to the dark ages. Oh, absolutely. You know, like, I feel like if, if I didn't have a computer, if I didn't have internet, I'd be fine. You yeah. know, like, you know, I'd, I'd miss it, but it's not no big deal. But you take electricity away from me, you know, I'm starting to struggle. Well, absolutely, because one of the things, too, is we've got rid of the other stuff. So, you know, we had horses, now we've got motor cars. Yeah, we, we don't have the skills. Motor. I don't know how to ride a horse. Well, that, that's right. Yeah. We can't make a horse do the things it used to do. Um, yeah. You know, we had sailing ships, but now we've got... Yeah, and I don't have a lot of candles lying around, you know, yeah. when, uh, when it's dark and That's so right. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things with technology and with the efficiency paradigm is it means we walk an ever narrower tightrope. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's a brilliant tightrope. Yeah. If something goes wrong... Yeah, you don't want someone to cut the tightrope. Yeah. yeah, that's a good answer too. Oh, you might get full marks today, I know. Um, so a silly little question to finish is my last one. Do you feel guilty if you don't ever eat everything on your plate? So this goes towards frugality and... Uh, yes. You know, where, would you have been a good person in the 17th century? No, <laughs> uh, I would not. <laughs> but I was brought up at a boarding school in England which not only required you to eat everything on your plate, and some of it was positively disgusting, um, but also taught me how to write with a, a dip nib pen and all these sort of advanced technologies. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm out of sync with... That's the aristocracy for you, you know. They're not interested in work or anything. They're just interested in being fancy. Oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so, do I feel guilty? No, I don't feel guilty, but I feel... I feel it's not me. It's like, you know, if I haven't parked properly parallel, yeah. my yeah. tyres aren't properly You're incul- You are inculcated I to finish. Exactly I was, was exactly the same. I'd always finish what was in front of me, even though I was full. We talk about obesity and all that sort of stuff. And then I reckon about 20 years ago, I reckon I was struggling to get through a meal. And I was just like, you know what? I don't need to finish this meal. <laughs> you know, I don't need the rest of it. And I, I haven't really worried about it ever since. Now, having said that, I usually do eat what's on my plate because, it's, you know, I'm hungry. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I, I, I observed that because I was raised the same. Yeah. You know, finish what's on your plate before you can leave the table and yeah. stuff. And, oh. and that has less of a tie on me than it used to. So I thought this was an interesting thing. When, when I went to school, <clears throat> I was given my mother's six inch ruler. Um, wooden ruler from her time at school. Because <laughs> my ruler was 12 inches. I don't want to compare sizes, I <laughs> but I had a 12 incher, mate. <laughs> well, 30 centimetres, as we uh, call it here. No, I, I was eight years old going up to boarding school in a essentially foreign country. Um, but you know, that's how things were done conserved and frugally handed on from generation to generation. Of course, now you just go and buy another plastic ruler anytime you need one. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's 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 a wind-up, Hutto. Um, so we're, we're basically done. That was my final question. Now, this is good. So we're going to see each other on the flip-flop. Yeah, I'll see you on the flip-flop. Only there will be no flops. We will stick to flips. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't trust the flop, can you? No. All right, see ya. La, 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 la.